Okay. We've been going through the Eightfold Path, and we are on a particular limb of the Eightfold Path. It's called Right Effort. The Eightfold Path is divided up into three parts. Uh, there's uh, Right Understanding and Right Intention, which is called the Wisdom Division. And right Speech, Right Action, Right Livelihood is called the Virtue Division. And Right Effort, uh, Right Concentration, and Right Mindfulness are the Meditation Division. And so we're now in the Meditation Division, and uh, we're on uh, Right Concentration. And um, uh, Blake introduced this uh, topic last Thursday. So, uh, first of all, let's just provide the, the formal definition of right effort, which serves as a reference, helps you to, to remember, helps you bring it back. And right effort is defined in terms of the wholesome and the unwholesome. And so right effort is uh, basically guarding your mind and guarding your senses, uh, which of course ends up guarding your means guarding your speech and your behavior as well. But uh, guarding your mind and guarding your senses uh, so that when there is something unwholesome that has arisen, that you try to uh, release it, set it, set it aside. And unwholesome thing, you try to prevent unwholesome things from arising. With regard to the wholesome, uh, when there is some uh, wholesome uh, thought, intention present in your mind, you want to sustain it and maintain it, keep it there. And of course, you want to try to cause those unwhole, those wholesome, sorry, those wholesome states that have not yet arisen to cause them to arise. So that's that's the definition of of uh, right effort, in terms of the wholesome and the unwholesome. And so, what is wholesome? We've actually talked about all the other parts of the Eightfold Path, because before we started talking about uh, right understanding and right intention, we spent a lot of time talking about meditation, concentration, and mindfulness. So. The wholesome and the unwholesome have basically been defined uh, by all of the other parts of the Eightfold Path. So does that help you to recall in terms of... The Paramitas. What's that? The Paramitas, the Well, the Paramitas, uh, the perfections, are a way of, of, of doing this practice. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the the perfections are there's the uh, uh, what you what you're practicing there is right effort right in, in all of them but one of the paramitas is uh, right effort itself it is joyful effort so really the paramitas are kind of a restatement of the whole eightfold path. So rather than get into what the paramitas are, 
Let's just stick with left wholesome and wholesome. We'll take meditation. You're sitting in meditation, right? What would be the wholesome that you want to be there, and what would be the unwholesome that you would like to uh, keep from arising if you can, or, or eliminate if it's if it's already present? Yeah. The unwholesome would be distraction, and the wholesome would be um, effortless awareness. Yeah, or a wholesome would be stability of attention. Right. Yeah. Uh, the wholesome would be feelings of peace and contentment and joy. And the unwholesome would be feelings of restlessness and agitation and dissatisfaction and things like that. Yeah. Oh, the rest of my life. Yeah, the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah, so this is what, what you do when you meditate, you practice right after you're sitting there. Okay, I'd like my attention to be stable, I'd like to be mindful. I'd like to have strong peripheral awareness, and I'd like in particular to be aware of what's going on in my mind. I would like to be aware of the distractions, the thoughts that come up in my mind that have the potential to take my attention away. Ah, isn't that just what we define right after as, right? Trying to prevent the unwholesome from arising. The distraction. You want to recognize when a distraction is there. If it's a gross distraction, you want to refocus on meditation on it. If it's a subtle distraction, you want to be on guard against it and keep it from becoming the focus of your attention. Okay? So I think meditation is a really good... Uh, with all of these things, okay, meditation is practice. Everything you learn to do in meditation you want to carry over and you want to do in the rest of your life and then in all of the other forms that the Dharma practice takes. So, so meditation, can you see meditation in terms of right effort, right concentration, right mindfulness? In the, in the formal presentation of meditation, there are the five hindrances Maybe some of you remember what they are, maybe some of you don't. The five hindrances are desire, that's the first one. Ill will is the second one. Laziness and lethargy is the third one. Sometimes you'll find it called sloth and torpor. Somehow, I don't like the sound of that, it's not quite as accurate. Laziness and lethargy. The fourth is Agitation of mind, specifically agitation due to worry and remorse. And the fifth is skeptical doubt. So these are the five hindrances. So the five hindrances really encapsulate all of the unwholesomeness in meditation. After all, what constitutes a distraction? Uh, objects of desire and aversion, right? Or uh, thoughts to do with uh, procrastination, laziness, and so forth, or thoughts that arise out of uh, agitation due to worry and remorse, or thoughts and, and feelings of, of, of doubt and uncertainty and lack of motivation. So the five hindrances are identifying for you a wholesome and the unwholesome meditation that you want to be on guard against, 
you want to, as your meditation proceeds, as you overcome the hindrances of desire and ill will, you have many, many fewer uh, distractions, and you have much less of the, this impulse to pursue the distraction uh, in meditation. And as, as you proceed and your meditation becomes successful, your mind becomes energized instead of lethargic, and dullness ceases to be a problem. And, uh, uh, of course, as you go along and you start to experience the benefits of meditation, um, this helps greatly to counteract any tendency to lethargy and laziness that you might have. Now, the hindrances of uh, agitation due to worry and remorse, while you're meditating, you, you can try to keep those sources of distraction from arising. But why are they there? Are they there because of what you've done in meditation? No, they're there because of what you've done when you were not meditating. All the things, all the different kinds of things that you've done a long time ago, just yesterday, maybe just before you meditated, and there's some part of your mind is processing that, and it's worrying about what might happen because of these things that you've done, or else it's uh, generating feelings of, of, of remorse for the things that you wish you hadn't done, and so forth. So, but if you look at all of the hindrances, isn't it the same thing? If you spend your day allowing yourself to be overwhelmed by desire, if your thoughts and your emotions and your activities, your actions and your speech, you allow those to be driven by desire, can you expect to sit down for 45 minutes or an hour or two hours a day and Turn that all off? No, not at all. Same thing with ill will. If you allow yourself to succumb to ill will and aversion and irritation and annoyance, whether it's directed to somebody else or whether it's directed at yourself, if you keep doing that when you're not sitting, it's going to be really hard to turn it off when you are sitting. So, the, the practice of right effort, it's it really, uh, it's a 24-hour-a-day job. And even if you were to divine, define the purpose of right effort just in terms of your meditation, in order to be successful in your meditation, you'd have to start practicing right effort outside of meditation. So we can look at all of these other things. If, you can see what the wholesome and the unwholesome are in meditation. They're pretty clear and straightforward. And you can see that when you're meditating, you're practicing right effort. And let's, let's have a look at all of the other limbs of the Eightfold Path and all of the rest of your life. And what is it wholesome and the unwholesome in those? I'd say the three limbs that come in the division called virtue are probably pretty straightforward, right? The wholesome and the unwholesome. I mean, we've talked about them. I'm not sure if all of you were here when we talked about those, but we talked about them at great length. 
It's not just about about what you say, because that's not really what the practice of right speech is about. The practice of right speech is about why you say what you say. It's about your intentions. And this is where desire and aversion and ignorance come in. Now, of course, the more, the, the better you are at not saying the wrong kinds of things and at saying the right kinds of things, then the result is going to be you're going to have many fewer causes of uh, worry and remorse, right? But if you were doing this practice in, uh, in the proper way, you're looking to see why it is, why it is that I have this inclination to say something that is false or divisive or harsh or so forth. And you're seeing that it, it comes from desire, aversion, or some form of ignorance, for that matter, doubt. Same thing is true for right speech and uh, right livelihood. I, I, you know, we've been through all that. What about right understanding? What's the wholesome and unwholesome that you need to guard your mind against? Uh, to do with uh, right understanding. Pride. Pride, yes. The ego, feeling like you are the separate self that you need to take care of, to protect and defend and gratify at every opportunity. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's definitely unwholesome, and that's definitely not right understanding. What would be the wholesome counterpart of that? Generosity. 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 Mm -hmm. It would. Yeah, it would certainly be that place of recognizing that that we're all the same and we're all connected and that uh, your pain is my pain, your happiness is my happiness. And, and that gives rise to uh, intentions of generosity. In terms of, uh, we don't need to be strict in this, but I want you to see the connections. Right intention is about setting aside uh, uh, desire, uh, selfish motivations, greed, lust, uh, setting aside aversion, anger, ill will, and replacing them with, them with generosity and loving kindness and compassion and all. This is the right intention part. Okay? So, uh, and, and we don't need to, to do this in a rigid didactic way, it's maybe good that you brought that up, because can you see that if you're, if you're operating from a worldview, a point of view, an understanding that's unwholesome, that's going to lead to unwholesome intentions, it's going to in, in, in turn lead to unwholesome speech and action. So the whole selfishness, the whole belief that your happiness and unhappiness comes from outside of you, 
comes from what happens to you. This is, this is an unwholesome point of view. It's an unwholesome belief. So, how are you doing at practicing right effort in your life? I'm making a good effort. <laughs> well, that's good. If you're making a good effort, how, how well are you succeeding? More often than not. That is really good. I that's think good. I am. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is tremendous. And doesn't it help to understand, help in order to do that, to understand all these other things that we're talking about? Yeah, I was going to say um, uh, I mean, I'm <clears throat> I'm succeeding except for um, I'm except for the uh, uh, huge extent to which I continue to fool myself uh, in believing that I can uh, separate what's going on on the cushion from um, the other 22 or so hours a day. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you've eliminated that uh, self-deception wonderfully. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so you, you you know where to direct your right effort. Then. Yeah, I, I know. I, I know why my sits are, are uh, uh, so disturbed and disturbing. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Great. Yeah. You no. Know, once you understand the problem, the solution is in sight. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Unlike everybody else here, I'm not doing really well. Um, um, it's it's been uh, a tough couple of weeks. Uh, people have been falling off their perch, and uh, I miss them, and this causes some pain. And I have been having this opportunity to 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 look at pain, and and yeah, yeah. It hurts. And what you just said about the illusion that your happiness or unhappiness it, it comes from stuff that happens to you outside of you, well, yeah, sucker. Um, it, they died, and that's outside of me and well beyond my control. And I, I keep trying to practice that let it come, let it be, let it go thing and not live with it, but it's stuck to my face like an alien. Mm-hmm. Yes, well, you know, there's an important thing about all of these in- intentional practices like this, is that they're not easy. They are challenging. They take a lot of time. Right? But if you persevere with them, they do make a big difference, and they make a big difference. So the thing to do is just to keep to keep working with them. You know, it's really important to understand that that first of the four noble truths: pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. Because I'm the author of my own suffering; I'm the one that makes pain and suffering. So that's a good thing to remember. If you can remember that, you know that it's true intellectually. Even though, you know, at a gut level, the whole rest of you is saying, no, it's not true, it's not true. You're going to make progress. It's going to help. But what you can't expect is that simply 
knowing that and letting go of your resistance to ideas that instantaneously you're going to have achieved the end of suffering because it doesn't happen like that. Yeah, it, this hurt doesn't really hurt much different than the hurt before I started practicing. Yeah. And that's all right. As long as it doesn't, as long as you don't try it a little bit and say, ah, it's not working. Which is the tendency, well, even more, even more often is the tendency that when it starts to hurt, you forget all about this and you go back, you revert to your old mode of, uh, I've got to do something to make it stop hurting out there. Or else I got to go and find something to make myself feel better, you know. Well, isn't there a, uh, when someone um, that you care about dies, I would think there would be a, a period of, of appropriate loss and pain that one would feel, and to and and to accept it is also a practice. There is, there is, and yeah. that's part of. This is what's happening now, exactly. and it's okay. Yeah. Uh, however, if two years later, it's your excuse for everything that you can't do mm-hmm. and get get on with, and maybe that's something else. That's right. Yeah, that applies to everything. I mean, somebody dear to you dies. It also applies to hitting your thumb with a hammer, right? Yeah. Yeah. At, at, at every level, you know. And, and it's the practice. Now, this is an interesting thing. I'm going to digress a little bit, but it's not really that much of a digression. It really gets to the heart of this. Right effort is extremely important and enormously valuable, as is right speech and right action and right livelihood, and as is right understanding and right intention. These things are all enormously valuable. They are effective. They do produce results. But by themselves, they are would constitute a lifetime of gradual improvement, of huge falling backs, and so forth. And the really important thing about this dharma that has come down to us, the the dharma that the Buddha taught, is that it promises way more than that. It says that there is a way of achieving this that is much more powerful and much more rapid, much more effective, that you can, you know, you can achieve the complete and total permanent end of suffering, the wisdom that accompanies it, the compassion, and it's not the result of this gradual piecemeal chipping away, chipping away. But that gradual piecemeal chipping away is a really important part of it. You see, what makes the big difference is the meditation practices, the training the mind. The training the mind will make the chipping away more effective. You'll remember to do it more often and uh, you'll chip away bigger chunks. Meditation helps a lot in that, but that's still just the gradual chipping away. The meditation, the training of your mind, brings you to a place where you have inside experiences that give rise to insight that just totally change at a fundamental level the way you view reality. And then, uh, 
all, all that stuff falls away. You don't have to keep chipping away at it. That's the wonderful thing about it. On the other hand, if you don't do the chipping away, you can meditate till you've got calluses on your butt, <laughs> and you're not going to get there. You know, so it's really a, a part of getting yourself to the place where you can have these transformative experiences is to practice the right speech and the right action and the right livelihood, is to practice right effort on and off the cushion 24 hours a day. You have to do that as part of it. You can't get there through concentration and mindfulness alone. It absolutely won't happen. It just won't happen. You've got to do both. But this is what's really important, is this promise that if you do this, and if you combine it with a serious meditation practice, and you cultivate the concentration, uh, the attentional stability, and the mindfulness that you need, then, you know, when you've only chipped away 25% of the, uh, of the uh, afflictions that have uh, accreted themselves on your, on your mind, all of a sudden it's what's open. And, and the work is done. There's an interesting thing, though. Anybody ever heard of Stephen Bashway? Yes. Okay. He's fighting the room. Yeah. Now, first of all, I want to say that I, I recommend Stephen Bashway's book because there's a tremendous amount of value in them. Part of the value is he strips away a lot of the, of the garbage that's gotten itself attached to the Buddha Dharma. And it's a cleaned up uh, version. And it's really so much of value can be gained by reading Stephen Bassford's book. There's one very unfortunate thing about Stephen though. And that is that he has thrown out the baby with the bathwater. He calls himself a Buddhist atheist. What does that mean? Well, what would a Christian, a Christian atheist be? You probably, everybody in the room knows some Christian atheists. They say... A Unitarian. I guess, <laughs> what is, what is a, a Unitarian. <laughs> uh, a Christian atheist is basically somebody that says, says Jesus was such a great guy, so wise, everything he taught was really good, we should all live by, if we all live by that, we'd all be better and happier and the world would be better. So, but divine, uh, but, you know, uh, God incarnate, that he's going to save you? Yeah. No? Christian atheist, yeah. And Stephen Batchelor is a Buddhist atheist. The same way a Christian atheist throws out all the divinity part of it and says, but, you know, if, if you follow his rules and if you, if you do what he recommends and if you live the way he says, it's all good. And that's what, that's what Stephen Baxter said. You follow the Eightfold Path and, you know, you, you study and you practice right speech and right action and right livelihood. He said, you'll be better off for it and you'll be happier and if everybody did it, the whole world would be better off, and everybody would be happier. But awakening, all this transcendental up, garbage, throw it out. So he's thrown out the baby with the bathwater. 
And that's that's what I don't want any of you to do. I don't want you to. Uh, I, I don't want you to make the mistake. There's two things that you could easily do, and that a lot of people do. I see a lot of Westerners do with the Buddha Dharma. Is they say, ah, it's the meditation thing, the meditation thing. I do that. Don't need all that other crap. It's hard to do anyway. It's not much fun. And uh, yeah, I know it's good and everything, but uh, it doesn't pay off. It's the meditation. I'll worry about the meditation. And please don't think that. Because the Buddha Dharma is, the whole thing's integrated. Everything works together. And the time you spend on the cushion isn't going to give you much payoff if you don't do the rest of it. But also don't go the other way. The disillusioned way. The cynical way. The been there, done that, tried it, it's a bunch of hogwash. And, and say, that's all there is. If we just study and practice these things, we'll be better off and we'll be happier. Because here you're, you're, you're chipping away, and after you've chipped away for 10 years, you realize that you're not going to live long enough to <laughs> chip away that much, right? So don't, please, don't do either one of those things. I think right effort, the theory behind the limb of the eightfold path called right effort is what ties this all together. That, that, on the cushion and off the cushion, you have to keep doing the same work. When you come to the point that you can understand what's wholesome and what's unwholesome, then you've got to cultivate the wholesome, and you've got to let go of the unwholesome. And if you do it in both arenas, and the positioning of right effort is it's right between uh, all these other things that happen in your life, right? Like reading books and having right intentions when you deal with other people, and Practicing right speech and right action, right right way. It's sandwiched between that and right concentration and right mindfulness. It ties it all together. It's, if you think of the eightfold path as uh, uh, an eight-stranded cable, you know, in, in a sense, uh, uh, the right effort is is the, the the one strand that somehow ties all the others together. Right effort, right action, right speech, 100% of the time, would you get to the same place as if you had done part of it with meditation? In other words, if you did all of that without the meditation? Well, okay, this is a theoretical question. If, okay, if your waking life was a perfect meditation in which everything that you spoke and everything that you did, and every decision you made about how you live, was done from a place of total mindfulness, in which you were capable of zeroing in on uh, the unwholesome roots of desire and aversion and ignorance, and, and replacing them with the wholesome roots of, uh, of uh, generosity, loving-kindness, compassion, patience, and so forth. You would have done the same thing if you were capable of doing that without sitting and meditating to cultivate those mental faculties that allow that, then you would have done the work, yes. So it's theoretically possible, but 
I don't know that maybe there is somebody that can do that. You know, and, and maybe you could be the one. But I know for me, I know for me, and I know for most of us that you know you get up in the morning with all of these great intentions, but as the day wears on, you, you've forgotten and you failed over and over and over again in all these different ways. The meditation gives you the capacity and the resources to change that. It quickens. Well, it's like, you know, if you take training your muscles, you know, you ever hear the story about the little boy who gets a calf and lifts the calf up every day until it's a 2,000 pound steer, really strong, you know. So that's a way of building muscle strength. But the way most real people would do it is they would do physical work and they would go to the gym and work out and they'd probably go jogging and swimming and other things so they didn't get all muscle down and everything else. So I think of it more as, in, in terms of the real complex individuals that we are, uh, the meditation allows us to do that. It, it gives us, as I say, the capacities, you know, the, the, the ability, um, and the resources to draw upon. And you're really practicing. You know, when you are practicing, recognizing when your mind is wandering and bringing it back to the object, that is, on a small, easy, simple scale, practice for doing the same thing when you're in the middle of a heated argument, uh, recognizing that that you're losing it and you're doing and saying things that are, right? Yeah. I'm suspecting I've found a loop whereby my meditation is, tends to have problems with distraction or alternating attention. And if that's due to a lack of uh, effort, right effort, then the main desire in my life might be for awakening. So then the, the desire for awakening is exactly. the agitation which is causing the lack of uh, a stable meditation. So the goal is the trip up for the progress. Mm -hmm. So how do you, how do you break that? If if you if you let it be, but you see it's it's recognizing. I mean, you recognize that that's what's happening, and that is your key. Once you recognize that that's happening, you know, and I don't know, maybe maybe you feel like you're just at the point where you recognize after the fact that it's happening. But we want to get to the place where you recognize that that's happening when it happens, so that. When you're sitting in meditation and you feel, uh, I don't know what form it takes, but say you, you start to feel some, some degree of doubt or disappointment, uh, it produces some restlessness and dissatisfaction, makes it harder to do the practice. And that may or may not be a description of what's happening with you, but I suspect it's a description of what most people experience at some time or another. It's when you recognize that, and you don't buy into the story your mind tells, but instead you recognize, okay, 
what's driving this is, is you know, the, the only way you can be disappointed is if you have expectations. And if you feel like you are experiencing restlessness and agitation that appears to be related to what you, you're, you're grasping after a certain level of achievement, accomplishment, and awakening, and you're measuring that against where you are right now, you're finding it lacking. So you've created the situation of expectation that leads to disappointment and all these other things. The whole key to it is recognizing it. That's, that's where the mindfulness comes in. That's where you're truly mindful. I mean, the beginning, beginning, beginning level mindfulness is knowing that you're getting restless. Advanced mindfulness is understanding why this restless, what restlessness is arising and what its roots are getting to those roots. There are a lot of things that people have come up with over the centuries to help people deal with that. And every one of these things will work for some people and not for others. And every one of these things is easily misunderstand, misunderstood and turned into a different kind of defilement. But one just very simple one that some teachers would offer you is, is just do the practice. You're already awakened. Stop grasping after this awakened being that you're going to be in the future. And just be that awakened being right now and stop worrying about it. <laughs> and that might work for you. That really might work for you. Or what might work for you is, is um, grace or Buddha nature, or whatever you want to put it in, in terms you want to put it in, that you just accept that there is something far greater than this uh, wanting, striving self that uh, is capable of bringing this into being. And all I need to do is to trust in and surrender to that. So I just do the practice, and whether it's the grace of God, or whether it's my getting out of the way so my Buddha nature can shine through, or whatever terms you want to put it in. But it's it's another way, psychologically. Because after all, what is it that wants? Well, it's this ego structure that you're trying to get past. What is it that's disappointed? What is it that's doing the measuring? It's 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 exactly the problem itself. So any any way that you can find to get around that. Do it. Do it. When you stop doing prayers, such as the mandala prayer, yeah, it feels like when I'm doing prayers, I feel like I'm generating a wish for that. Yes, which is then harming me because then I'm generating this. I want that. I want that. May that be the case. Like, is that it? Would that be an obstacle? I should well, actually cut that out for a while. Yes. Uh, the The problem is that when the wish is a selfish wish. Yeah. I want to become awakened. Okay. Uh, if you do the mandala prayer or, or any prayer, you can do it from a place of, of, of this selfish highness. Or you can, you can do it from a different place. You want to do it from a different place. You want to recognize that that's there. You cannot cease to feel like this separate eye that wants it. But you don't have to believe that. You can 
you can know what it's not. One thing I find really helpful is there is no such thing as an awakened person. So forget it. You are never going to be an awakened person. It really takes the pressure off. <laughs> but once you are out of the way, there will be a nexus of awakened behavior that will benefit everybody else around you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I was just wondering: Is anything good that we wish for our, ourselves automatically selfish? Because if it benefits us, to me, it doesn't necessarily mean that it doesn't benefit others at the same time. That's right. Yeah. And if I wish for something good for me that makes me happier. That wouldn't necessarily, I mean, it depends what it is. If I wish to have somebody else's car or something, that's not, of course, would be an obstacle. But if I just wish, you know, mm -hmm. satisfaction and contentment for myself, it, I don't, I don't see it as a selfish wish. Well, you, the really important thing is this let's never get into the mistaken way of thinking that. To want something for myself, for this body, or for this mind, or for this emotional complex that I am, that to that that's selfish and therefore it's bad and therefore this shouldn't happen. Because the fact is that until you are completely awakened, you know, and there are several stages before that, and until you are completely awakened, there is going to be some vestige of this feeling like you. Uh, you are a separate self, and you are going to be uh, acting in response to that. So you don't want to try to turn it off and stop it and say, oh, this is bad. I mean, it's really good to, to try to think and, and act as though you're already awakened. But don't make the mistake of thinking that, that you can try hard enough to, to succeed. You have to start where you are and you have to move towards it. Anybody needs to go? I can go. Uh, I'll try not to be too long. That's a good question and, and one pursue it. So, and the other thing is, you're not much use to anybody else if you don't take care of yourself. Okay? And so, even even a completely awakened being, even a Buddha, takes care of himself. And even a Buddha respects their own body. They may, may not identify it as theirs, and they may not identify it as, as, as me or mine, but they respect it and its needs. And it's the same way with every, every other aspect of a being. You know, a completely awakened being still has this responsibility to take care of themselves. And if they're awakened, uh, they're not doing it out of selfishness. The thing is that when you transcend the idea of self, it's not that this is bad, everybody else is good, it's that 
this and everybody else is, is the same, not separate. It's all equal. So I love I love this the same way I love that and that and that and that, right? It's all the same. A good simile for it is that uh, it's like a mother loves all of her children equally. At least, hopefully she does. <laughs> yeah, and, and so that would be your attitude towards the five aggregates, uh, you know, if, if you're awakened and towards the others. So, not, so there's all kinds of scope for, uh, for doing things in, in your self-interest. If you can put yourself in a state of joy and happiness for the purpose of advancing your practice, and if you can do so without causing pain and suffering and harm to other beings, you absolutely should do that. And to hold the wish to achieve awakening is not selfish. Well, it, it is selfish, but the selfish component of it will disappear by itself. If you live, if you continue to practice the desire uh, to become awakened, the selfish component of that desire does take care of itself, as long as you don't let it stop you from succeeding in your practice. So we're not saying, especially, you know, if if you're if you're not a stream entry yet, then don't have expectations about what you're going to be able to do. Of course, you're going to have all kinds of of selfish wishes. All we're asking you to do is to be mindful of them and to learn from them and to to change to transform yourself through the practice of mindfulness. And in each instance where it's possible that you can change your behavior in a positive way, or even you have no control over the thoughts that arise in your mind, and you have no control over the emotions that arise. But if you find that there is an unwholesome emotion, and you know a way to let go of that and replace it with a wholesome one, by all means do it. Likewise, you have an unwholesome thought. If, you know, many times you have an unwholesome thought, and it's in command, and there's nothing you can do about it. But if, it ever, if you're ever in a situation where you have an unwholesome thought, and you know you have an unwholesome thought, you can see that, and you can say, let me let go of that and think of this thing in a, in a different way. And by all means do it. That is the right effort. That's the right effort right there. Yeah. I have an example of that. Mm -hmm. Unless you want to stop now. Yeah. Um, I used to swear a lot. Yeah. It's a terrible habit. Really bad. Um, and um, gradually I've completely stopped swearing. Pretty much. <laughs> anyway, um, I, was, I was aware, I was made aware the other day by my husband that every morning when I wake up and get out of bed, I say the most incredible, awful stuff. <laughs> Just once during the day. Just one little phrase. And then I suddenly thought, oh my goodness, that's amazing. Think of the, the way that 
just keeps accumulating. I, I was totally unaware of it. And so now I wake up and I say, oh, happy day. And he looks at me like, huh? Is that human? What did you say before? I'll whisper it in your ear. <laughs> Someday. Okay. Well, thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.